Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. It is Thursday, April the 4th, 2019, and I'm currently recording this at 8.21 p.m. Central Time. The Lord's Supper. Now, you think that would be a subject that all Christians could agree on. You think that the Lord's Supper would be an idea, a doctrine, a practice that would have unified Christians throughout the history of the church. The only problem is, if you thought that, you would be completely wrong. The Lord's Supper has divided entire denominations. The Lord's Supper has been a subject of controversy and dispute and debate throughout church history. In fact, today, if you got 10 Christians together and started talking about all the issues related to the Lord's Supper, you would get very little agreement. In fact, I would probably go so far to say you would have 10 people and 50 different opinions. And sadly, that is true when it comes to many subjects, many doctrines within Christianity. Now, the reason that happens, I am convinced, is because most of these issues are, listen, hermeneutical in nature. What do I mean by that? That the reason there's disagreement, the reason there is dispute, is because of hermeneutical differences. And what we have a tendency to do is say, well, oh, I believe this about the Lord's Supper. No, I believe this about the Lord's Supper. Well, I think you're wrong. No, I think you're wrong. Well, here's my three verses. Here's my three verses. And what you have to do is go, time out! Everyone, go to their, to their corner, all right? Go to the neutral corner. Stand there and stop talking. First, what we have to establish is, What's your hermeneutical method and show me how you're utilizing your hermeneutical method to come to the conclusion you are about this important doctrinal subject. It doesn't matter if it's baptism, doesn't matter if it's the Lord's Supper, doesn't matter if it's church discipline. You have to first establish what's your hermeneutical method, what's your method of interpretation, and then show me the work. Show me how you have used that method and what what. What, how did you do that? How did you do your study? What, what passages did you look up? What, uh, did you do a word study? Uh, did you do a, um, you know, a topical study, a thematic study? Like, like how, how, how did you take your method of interpretation then use it in Bible study? Because Bible study, you have to observe the text. So after you've done your Bible study observation, then you applied your method of hermeneutics which for interpretation. Then how did you come to your conclusion? Before we start debating each other on this, subject, we have to stop and in a sense, it's like in a math class, don't just give me the answer, show me your work. How did you, how did you arrive at the answer? I need to see your work before we can have the debate. But this is what I have found over and over and over when debating with Christians. They don't have any work to show you. They've spent very little time studying anything, but they all believe themselves to be experts on every doctrine and every theological issue merely by the fact that they're a Christian and that they've gone to church. And I don't know, they, they attended Awana when they were young and they memorized five scriptures. I don't know what makes them think they become experts of the text, but they do. And they will argue and debate. If you don't believe me, hop on Facebook. If you have a bunch of friends who are Christians, just post a theological claim or a doctrine and wait for all the theological to come 
showing up. They've been on Facebook, they've been your friend on Facebook for five years, and all they've ever done is posted pictures of what they've had for supper, okay? Posted pictures of their kids, but all of a sudden you post something biblical and dun da dun da da, they are a theologian. They are a biblical expert, and they start telling you what you should believe, but they don't show you their work. And so what we have to do is stop engaging sometimes in doctrinal disputes and have hermeneutical discussions. I hope that makes sense because this is a very practical lesson here. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Well, Wednesday on issues, etc., they talked about the two natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Now, that right there raises some controversy because depending on your view of the Lord's Supper, you may not believe no, you may not believe there are, that none of Christ's natures are present in the Lord's Supper. You may believe it's completely symbolic that Christ is not present in any way, shape, or form. Others may believe no, He is present, but He is present. His body, His you know, His flesh. You know, we we could get into all the different views. I'm not going to go. Through, I'm not going to turn this into an entire lecture on the Lord's Supper. Okay, but um, we'll we'll talk about what I'm going to do about this subject here in a minute. But they were talking about the two natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Um, is his physical body present, or his divine body? Is it is it his is it his is it his human body or his divine body that is present? Is there a difference between those two? They they raise lots of questions now. This is important. Issues, etc. is a Lutheran program. So they are going to talk about the Lord's Supper and the natures of Christ within the Lord's Supper from a Lutheran theological perspective. Now, why am I going to play this for you in the Hermeneutics 101 podcast? Well, here's the reason why. Because I believe, as I just clearly established in my introduction, that your disagreement with the Lutheran position or your agreement is based should be based off a hermeneutical study that you've spent intensive time doing observation and then you did intensive time doing interpretation and therefore you came to a conclusion. Now, what most people have done is they've heard a few sermons, read a couple of scriptures, and think they've got it all figured out. But I thought it would be interesting to at least listen to the Lutheran perspective, hear them out, and try to figure out what they actually think about it and, 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 and see, and see what, we can, what we can figure out or how we can uh, understand it in, in some way, shape, or form. Because, because I think hearing different perspectives challenges us. Now listen, this is very important. I think listening to different perspectives challenges us to go back and really dig in to what method of interpretation we use to come to our conclusion. Hearing the different perspectives should challenge us to reconsider our perspective, to go, wait a minute, how much work have I really done on this subject? How much study? How many hours do I even have in handling the biblical text on this very crucial issue? So I'm going to present to you the Lutheran perspective on this question. Now, it's not a complete teaching of the Lutheran view on the Lord's Supper, but it's, it's going to be implied and talked about a little bit within this. But I want you to hear it. I want you to make, make you start thinking about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Uh, is Christ present? And is he not present? And, and if he is present, how is he present? And what, what, what do you believe about that? Are you even familiar 
with uh, some of the confessions of faith when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Do you know what the Westminster Confession of Faith says? Do you know what the London Baptist Confession of Faith says? Do you know what Calvin said about the nature of the Lord's Supper? Do you know what the early church fathers said? Do you, I mean, do you have any clue? Your church, what doctrinal statement do they have in regards to the nature of the Lord's Supper? And if, if, they, do, if they believe Christ is present somehow in it, what, how is he present? Like, these are important questions that I think, I don't think many Christians have even really given much time, much thought of, but yet there they are, partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I would raise a very serious warning right there. If you read 1 Corinthians and the warnings offered there about partaking of the Lord's Supper and not doing so in a correct manner, it sounds pretty scary. People were sick, people were dying. And if you don't even truly understand what's going on, if you've never really studied it, if you don't even really have any way of even answering basic questions about it, if you don't even understand the different views on it, are you really approaching the Lord's table in a worthy manner if you don't even really understand what's going on and you don't even really, you can't even answer basic questions about it and, and you think you're so, and in fact, you're almost arrogant and thinking you're so certain about it? I would say that that's a dangerous way to approach the table. You should have a solid understanding of it because of intensive study related to it. This is a subject that has divided Christianity. It still does. There's mass disagreement um, in regards to it. And, and, and I would say there's disagreement, there is confusion, and there is ignorance. Disagreement, confusion, and ignorance. That should not be so as something as important as the Lord's Supper, which is this this thing that has been given to us, we believe, by Christ, so that we can remember his sacrifice, his death, the shedding of his blood, him offering up his body as a sacrifice, giving his blood for our salvation. This is something that, that should unite us together as we remember what he has done for us. It should have spiritual benefits to us. It should be something that we not only want to do the right way, but we want to truly understand it so that we are not taking this gift given to us for granted. We're showing the respect it deserves. And if you don't even know anything about it and can't even answer basic questions, then you, well, you have it. And again, I'm placing this in the hermeneutic section because I believe all the discussions about a doctrine like this are hermeneutical in nature. So this is a, let me look at this, 29 minute, about a 29 minute clip. It comes from issues, etc. So it start, it's a radio program. So it starts off like a typical radio program. They have some advertisements. They do play at the very beginning. It's going to be uh, after the kind of the commercial, I think, that airs. Then there's a section from a, a, a liturgical hymn that is used for the celebration of the Lord's Supper um, in Lutheran churches. Uh, so you can, you know, you'll, you'll listen to that and then they'll come in with their discussion. You have the host of uh, issues, etc., and you have a professor from Concordia Theological Seminary. Listen to the discussion. Now, some of you may have no clue what they're talking about. If you don't and if you're confused, email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif, I'm losing my voice. Newsif at yahoo.com. And I will do my very best to take those questions. And guess what? I will possibly record or do a live broadcast on the VBC 66 app. 
Yes, if you do not have the VBC66 app, you're going to want to get the app. And you can get the app by going to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, doing a search for VBC66, download the app, it's absolutely free. But this is what I'm going to do. Any questions you have, or any thoughts, or any comments you have in regards to what they say or anything about the Lord's Supper, email them to me. I can do a special recording answering those questions. And in the sermon and Bible study notes section of the VBC 66 app, I will try to see if I can find some um, additional sermons or discussions about the Lord's Supper and post them there. Now, me posting them there will not necessarily mean that I agree um, in any way, shape, or form. It's to offer varying perspectives to challenge you to think deeply about this very important doctrine. You should know about the Lord's Supper. Is your church even practicing it right? I will argue that most churches are not because I believe in closed communion. That means the, on the only people who are allowed to partake of communion in a local assembly are the members of that local assembly because if you 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 have to fence the table because of the inherent danger that comes with partaking of the Lord's table in an incorrect manner. I think one of the reasons we have you have church discipline is to keep people away from the Lord's Supper because if you eat it in an unworthy manner, you can eat the, the text talks about uh, being sick dying, eating, you know, I think the King James uses the word judgment or damnation upon yourself. Those are serious words. And you've got churches who hand the thing out like candy. They hand it to kids, they hand it to anyone, and they end up like, you know, if you if you are here today, we, we don't know who you are, but if you're here today, and if you if you go to another church of like faith, okay, well, are you gonna define what your faith is? Well, we both have Baptists on the name. That doesn't mean anything. What this person, do you know them? Are they sitting there because they were excommunicated from their previous church? Like, like you have to ask some questions, but no, no, we don't. And we just hand it out because we don't want to offend anyone. And so we basically, uh, in my opinion, turn the Lord's Supper into a time of sacrilege, almost a time of blasphemy. And I think we're showing complete and utter disrespect to Christ to the Lord's Supper and to his sacrifice. I think churches should, I think, I think in many cases, people should possibly leave their church because their church is not handling the Lord's Supper in a biblical manner and find a church that is. Um, I think it's a, a serious issue, a serious issue. But we could talk about closed communion versus closed communion versus open communion. We could talk about transubstantiation, the Catholic view. We could talk about the, the Lutheran view. We could talk about the, the Calvin, uh, Calvin's view, uh, Presbyterian view, Reformed Baptist view. We could talk about all the different views, the memorial view, all the different views. There's so much we could talk about when it comes to this subject. It's a big subject. But remember, it's hermeneutical issues. Before you debate those issues, because that's how it always turns into, oh, I practice closed, I practice close. Let's debate it. No, 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 let's not. Let's do some hermeneutical work and see what we discover first. Find out what, if we're using the same hermeneutical approach, the same observational approach, because if we're not even approaching it the same way, then we cannot come to the same conclusions. I think that's very important. All right, my, my introduction that was supposed to be two minutes has gone 15 minutes because I have a problem. I love to talk about things related to the scriptures. In fact, I love to talk about pretty much any subject. You just name a subject, give me a microphone, and I can talk for hours. And you think I'm joking. I'm not. I'm not. I'm really not. Those who know me know that. All right, I'll stop. Here it is.
from this past Wednesday, which was yesterday, I was for some reason thinking it's Friday, from yesterday on Issues Etc., a Lutheran radio program, they're going to discuss to dis, they're going to discuss the natures of Christ and the Lord's Supper. Listen, think about it. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you hear a hermeneutical method being utilized and their discussion of it? How would your hermeneutical approach differ? How would you see it differently? How would you answer their approach? How would you challenge their approach? How would you rebuke their approach? Just lots of things to ask yourself, but I hope this will prove to be a beneficial exercise. And again, if you know other people who'd be interested in listening to things related to hermeneutics, please tell them about the VBC 66 app because there on the app, they can access the hermeneutics 101 section where I post all kinds of things hermeneutics related. And uh, I think we need more and more Christians, not only interested in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation, but excited about actually doing it, not just learning about it. All right. Here is the episode from this Wednesday, Issues, Etc., The Natures of Christ and the Lord's Supper. Listen carefully. Many patients are upset to learn that doctors don't take the Hippocratic Oath anymore. National Review columnist Wesley Smith talking about his presentation at the 2019 Issues, Etc., Making the Case Conference. That's a real shame because the Hippocratic Oath protects patient safety. The speech I will give at the conference will describe the consequences of, of violating Hippocratic values in healthcare and the things that can occur in the healthcare system if we move away from Hippocratic medicine to a more utilitarian bioethics. You can meet and hear Wesley Smith making the case for the Hippocratic Oath at the one and only 2019 Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 7th and Saturday, June 8th in Chicago. Attendance is limited to 500. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. St. Thomas Choir of Men and Boys with stanza four of the Lord's Supper hymn, Now My Tongue the Mystery Telling, Word made flesh, the bread he taketh, by his word his flesh to be, wine his sacred blood he maketh, though the senses fail to see, faith alone, the true heart waketh to behold the mystery. When you believe something about Jesus' body in the Lord's Supper, that's going to affect what you believe about Jesus' body on the cross and in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The nature of the incarnation is on the line with what you believe when you hear Jesus say those words, this is my body. 
We're going to be talking about the two natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper on this Wednesday afternoon. Joining us to do so, Dr. Jacob Corzine, Assistant Professor of Theology at Concordia University of Chicago and author of a column for the latest Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Body of Christ. Jacob, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Glad to be here. Why do you ask your students the question, in the Lord's Supper, is it the divine body of Christ or the human body of Christ you receive? Well, you know, I started asking that question a few semesters ago, just looking for questions to help the students realize that there's more to learn, that they haven't figured it all out. And the students I asked this question of are, are Lutheran students who, of course, have been through catechesis or confirmation, and they already know about the Lord's Supper, but I want them to realize that there's more to learn, there's more depth to it. And one of the things I want them to do is to begin to connect the body and blood on the altar in the Lord's Supper, the, what they receive there, to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because it's the same body and blood that was sacrificed there. It's a good starting point. They always raise their eyebrows and think I'm trying to trick them. And uh, I always have to sort of assure them it's not the case. There's no trick here. There's a right answer. But then they, we have to talk through it. Why is it important to understand that Jesus' human nature shares in divine power when it comes to the Lord's Supper? This is the old dispute with the Reformed. And if you, if you give a careful read through the formula of Concord, you see that for the Lutherans, they sort of they read the Reformed position on this that Jesus' human nature doesn't share in the divine power. The, 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 the idea is that if it does share in the divine power, it's not really human anymore. But if it doesn't share in the divine power, then Jesus can't be a substitute for all of our sins. There has to be a divine power that extends the merit of that death to all people. Otherwise, the redemption doesn't exist and the whole faith falls apart. How was the fact that Jesus' human nature shares in the divine power, how was that demonstrated during the earthly ministry of Jesus? So the, the big place, of course, that, that is, this is demonstrated is at the end of the earthly ministry with the death, right? When Jesus dies as a man, you see all of the things that happen, the, the sky darkening and the, the curtain tearing. And, of course, you know that this is for the sins of the whole world. And that's the big demonstration. But you, of course, have the smaller demonstrations along the way that are little clues about this, like the healing miracles that Jesus does, like the turning water into wine. Perhaps also the way that Jesus as a boy also speaks with authority when he stays back in Jerusalem. Things like that are your clues that there, um, there's more than just a man here. So how is this truth of the, we, we would say, the communication or the sharing of divine attributes by the perfect human nature of Jesus necessary for a proper understanding of the words that Jesus speaks when he institutes the Lord's Supper, this is my body. This is an interesting question, Todd, because I think the right answer to this question is that it's it's not. <laughs> and I mean that like this. The natural understanding of the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, and if you extend that, then also the words do this in remembrance of me already provide for a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper because you can't do what Jesus is doing with the disciples. You can't repeat that if you can't do the same thing he's doing with them. And so when he says, this is my body, we of course take him at his word, that is his body, then it has to be his body down the road in the future. And so the natural understanding of the words already create a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. What happens is if you deny this truth, if you say that the human body doesn't share in access to the divine power, then you're forced to 
undermine Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper. So, it's sort of one of the accusations you can read once in a while about Lutheran understanding of the Lord's Supper is that we work backwards from our Christology to how the Lord's Supper must be. But I don't think that that's right. I think it happens that if we understand the redemption on the cross and Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper correctly, then they both lead us to the same conclusion, which is that the human, the human nature of Christ shares in attributes of the divinity. So you're saying that if there isn't that sharing, Jesus' command, do this, makes no sense whatsoever because there's no way we're going to be able to do what he says, which is speak his words, this is my body, this is the body of Christ. Well, exactly. If uh, if his human nature, I mean, this is what it boils down to. I for to sort of make the point. Sometimes I talk to my students about it in terms of poundage, right? The amount of of Jesus flesh that has to go around on the altars defies every kind of of physics or science, right? That's only possible if that human body has access to those divine attributes. And so, if we say, this is my body, and say, Jesus is saying this, we can't allow him to mean what those words obviously mean unless that human body can spread itself out more widely than is humanly possible, no pun intended. We're discussing the two natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper with Dr. Jacob Corazine, Assistant Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Concordia University, Chicago is the home of the one and only 2019 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 7th and Saturday, June 8th. Attendance is limited to 500. Registration is $125. That includes three meals. Child care is free, thanks to Lutheran Church Extension Fund's sponsorship. Find out more about the premier conference for Christian laity at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. A question for Dr. Corzine when we come back. If those who say Christ's body cannot do what it, it Jesus says it does in the Lord's Supper, is this why the Reformed, in their right for the Lord's Supper, often emphasize Jesus said, this is my body? And why should we not only about what we receive in the Lord's Supper, but also whom we receive. Evangelical and Catholic, you're listening to Issues Etc. What makes Christ our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. Hey, Todd, what have our listeners noticed first when visiting the LPR studios? Definitely the small size and the dirt. Well, not anymore. Thanks to our friends at the Cleaning Authority. They've turned this man cave into a space that meets even our wives' approval. Whether it's our office or your home, the Cleaning Authority is your cleaning service provider in the St. Louis area. To schedule a free estimate or to find out more, visit thecleaningauthority.com. Thecleaningauthority.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the two natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Dr. Jacob Corzine is our guest, author of a column in the latest issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Body of Christ. 
The Lutheran Witness magazine interprets the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. It's available in print and online. Learn more at cph.org witness, cph.org witness. Dr. Corzine, before the break, you were talking about how the Reformed really cannot allow Jesus' words to mean what he says because it would require that they believe something about Christ's body that they simply refuse to believe. Is that why the Reformed in their right often emphasize the said in Jesus said, this is my body? Well, I would say that's about 50% of it, and the other 50% of it is to allow a a Lutheran who is not extremely sensitive to these things to hear what he or she wants to hear there as well. (laughs) Interesting. So if we deny that sharing of attributes between Christ's divine and human nature, does it also affect our view of what is happening with Jesus when he dies on the cross? This is what all of it boils down to, right? So I have almost a pet theory, and that's probably, we shouldn't probably have any pet theories in theology. But, you know, as we have more conversations about the necessity of a clear confession of the historical death and the historical resurrection of Christ, it strikes me that all of that is locked away if you have a proper, I want to say robust Lutheran understanding of the Lord's Supper. If you have to give up the communication of attributes, if you have to give up the, the humanity of Christ in the Lord's Supper, then you, you open the door to handing over the resurrection. Let me see if I can put that a different way. Or you open the door to handing over even the crucifixion. By requiring the confession that the human body and blood of Christ are given to us in the Lord's Supper, we are requiring that everything that the Bible says happened to Jesus, everything that he went through, um, his passion, his suffering, his death and his resurrection, are all true events. Because the human body is its part of the world and history. Right? Having this understanding of the Lord's Supper prevents us from taking that Jesus who seems far away and making him irrelevant. Because if he's irrelevant, then we have to fall back on a symbolic understanding of the Supper. Because we pull the rug out from under it otherwise. If these sharing between the divine nature and the human nature does not or cannot occur, then the blood that Jesus shed at the cross that we are told repeatedly cleanses us from all sin can't cleanse us from all sin. It's just human blood, right? That's precisely it. That's precisely it. The reason that just some random man couldn't die for our sins is twofold. One, because he has to die for his own sins. And two, if he's just a man but actually sinless, then he could die for one other person. But we needed a redeemer who could die for all of us. And that requires more. Some Christians assume, and I think almost without even putting it in so many words, that after his ascension, Jesus' incarnation kind of ceases. He's no longer human, but only divine, now ascended to the Father. Why do they assume this? And what's the danger of that assumption? I think you, you, what you described there is sort of a the fuzzy collection of old Christological heresies reintroduced in the 21st century, right? It's not the Reformed position. They certainly believe that Jesus was 
fully human and fully divine. It's just that the full humanness is trapped at the right hand of God in that understanding. That's not that's not their issue. I think what you're describing is a is a position that really very quickly falls outside of the realms of of Orthodox Christianity, and I think that it is probably best understood as a problematic understanding of the divinity as well. Sometimes you get this confusion of divine with spiritual, as though Jesus' body is his humanity and his spirit is the divinity. And if you do that, then then you can treat the resurrection as a change from bodily Jesus Christ to spiritual Jesus Christ. And you, on the one hand, you resolve a lot of sort of historical scientific issues because the accounts of the Bible don't make themselves entirely accessible to that kind of study. But on the other hand, you, well, you have to sacrifice your fundamental understanding of God to do that. And we speak about very clearly about God as spirit. Now you're actually turning it around and you're saying spiritual means divine. Uh, you would say then we all have sort of a little a divinity inside each one of us because we have a spirit and then when we die and we escape from our bodies we become purely spiritual we become divine this isn't christianity that i'm describing anymore but that's the danger down that path this idea that jesus human nature is a full human nature and precisely the kind of human nature we have yet without sin is confessed very clearly in the Athanasian Creed, where it just says, almost as an aside, of body and soul subsisting, talking about his his human nature. They had to say that in order to guard against this notion that somehow this is merely an empty human shell inhabited by a divine spirit. That's exactly the passage I always show my students to make this point, that Jesus did not simply adopt a body— and carry it along for a while, giving it a divine soul. But he adopted everything that is human about us, and that means both soul and body. That's, by the way, interesting when you begin to speak about, sometimes we use this word incarnational, uh, to talk about things that are earthly in the way that God works in an earthly fashion down here in the world, and to think about the fact that also the, the part of us that is not physical, the part of us that is... I don't want to use the word in – I don't mean the the job or the university profession, but the part of us that is psychological, that is characterized by the soul, is also part of what Christ redeemed. That's really a wonderful thing to realize, that there's no part of us that Christ didn't assume in order to redeem. Where in Scripture are we taught about Jesus' incarnation enduring into all eternity? The first place that I would direct us to for that is very simply the accounts in Luke 24 and Acts 1 of the Ascension, right? that we don't have at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, neither simply that he dies, nor that he resurrects spiritually, nor that he somehow disappears, but the disciples watch what they can see, which is his body, right? which is the human nature, ascend up into heaven. We don't have further account of something else happening to that, not as though the divinity left that human nature and the disciples then somehow disposed of it again or something like that. But everything that they have that is Jesus ascends into heaven. So that's the one thing I would point us toward. And then the other passage I would point us toward is 1 Corinthians 15 that teaches about the resurrection of the dead and that Jesus is the first of those who will rise from the dead and that this resurrection is unto immortality, which is to say it's a resurrection from which you never die again. And then maybe I would still make this sort of logical step that it's not any addition to the divinity 
for it to become immortal because God is immortal. But as a human being, Jesus Christ was very capable of dying and did. But after the resurrection, he's no longer capable of that. That life is permanent. And the only end to life is death. If he can't die again, then he uh, continues. Many Christians would be wary of a statement like, we worship the man Jesus Christ. Why is it necessary for us to be able to say that? This is kind of a fun thing, right? There's, uh, I think there's good cause to be wary of a statement like, we worship the man Jesus Christ. But uh, one of the things you can read that I guess we don't, we don't read a whole lot, but as a matter of fact, it's not. It's a text from Luther that I don't think is published in his works as we have them in English right now. But there is a, a translation of it published in, a, I think, a Lutheran quarterly article. It's his disputation on the humanity and divinity of Christ where he spends a few theses explaining that we're actually really free to use different kinds of language when we talk about Christ and that it's, it's very correct to say we worship the man Jesus Christ. But basically he says when push comes to shove, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, you can only allow yourself that freedom if you are able and willing to be precise when you need to. Right. And so, of course, only God should be worshipped. And so that's what makes people worry about a statement like we should worship the man Jesus Christ. But God and man are united in the one person, Jesus Christ. And so if we separate out the man because we're afraid to worship him, that means we can't worship Christ at all. Then we make actually kind of conceptually, I think, the risky thing at the Lord's Supper, which is that we have Jesus Christ in front of us and we don't worship him. If you would answer your own question that you pose to your students so often, in the Lord's Supper, is it the divine body of Christ or the human body of Christ you receive? You said there was one right answer. Right. And I lean on them until they get it. It's the human body, but it's the body of the person, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. So I have no problem saying that God has a body as long as I'm being understood as saying that it's the body of Jesus Christ, which he has according to the human nature. It's a human body but it belongs to God. What's the comfort of knowing that Jesus gives us his own body in the Lord's Supper? It's the same body shed on the cross for our sins. And then there's this additional comfort. It's Jesus traversing the whole distance from his place at the right hand of the Father to us today. It's not on us to bridge any of that distance, but Jesus himself bridges that. And then there's this, that that body with which he bridges that, the body that he gives to us, I mean, everything that it was ever willed to do by the one will of the person Jesus Christ was totally singular in purpose. It was for the provision of the forgiveness of our sins. That's what that body is there for. It's nothing but comfort, and both in terms of what it provides and in that it makes sure that it's completely provided by Christ, that he retains all of the glory for that. Are Christians who deny the bodily presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper at least potentially in danger of holding to an unbiblical view of Jesus himself? Yes, definitely. And I think we can treat this, you can treat this either historically or sort of systematically. And historically, you would sort of just walk through the different, the different ways that the bodily presence of Jesus has been denied in the Supper. But if we treat it systematically instead, then I would say... We don't hold on to the Lord's Supper doctrine because of our Christology. We don't hold on to the bodily presence of Christ because of what we say about the 
two natures united in the one person. Um, you could theoretically maintain a Lutheran position on Christology and a position on the Lord's Supper that says it's just a symbol. But if you say that the Supper is a symbol because it's not possible for it to be otherwise, because it would create a problem in our understanding of Jesus Christ, then you're at the unscriptural view of Jesus himself. Then you're building a Christological error up that costs you in the redemption. Because again, if his human body doesn't have access to the divine traits, then he could only die for himself or, so to speak, one other person. While it isn't wrong to speak of what we receive in the Lord's Supper, that we often do, why is it helpful also to speak of whom we receive? You've got it exactly right. The one isn't wrong and the other correct. I always feel like it comes just comes up a little short to speak about the presence of Christ as we have them there in the supper as though it's just a what and not a whom, as though Jesus sends off a part of himself but doesn't also accompany that with his personal presence. Now, there is a, there is a, a mistake to make there to say that the presence of Christ there is a personal presence instead of a what we call a sacramental presence, right, where we refer to the presence of the body and blood. But to think of it as though Jesus Christ doesn't, well, it would be like having him deny that simple statement, wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am among you. Well, certainly where the two or three are gathered around the Lord's Supper, then we cannot disregard that he is there also as person among us. So that's why the who and not just the what. You say that there are also liturgical implications for these truths in that Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday belong together. Why is that? Well, for the sake of this discussion, it's so that the two greatest expressions of this, we call it the genus myasteticum, of this communication of the attributes, which I've, you know, it's always a challenge to translate that for my students, right? But the access to the divine characteristics that's given to the human nature for the sake of this discussion, the Lord's Supper instituted on Monday, Thursday and the sacrifice on the cross on Good Friday are the two most dominant, most prominent, the two prime examples of where that happens, the two greatest expressions of where that takes place. So we see if when we have them together like this, we see next to each other the divine uh, solution in earthly time of the problem to sin, that's Good Friday, but we also see the application of that to the individual believers. And so we have, Todd, we have the atonement and we have its application side by side, and we don't ever want to pull those apart from one another. Finally, why should a, a young man consider enrolling as a pre-seminary student at Concordia University, Chicago? We have a thought, theology department full of wonderful theologians in, interested in teaching this sort of thing clearly. Um, but I, I wouldn't say something different about our other Concordias. We have, though, we have a wonderful language program where if you're a motivated student, you can come here and you can pick up Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and we've started teaching German now as well, which is very exciting. I'm doing that with the students. I have uh, seven students in that this semester. They can take Spanish with us, which I think is not uh, insignificant these days for the ministry. We have liturgical chapel services every day, which uh, are a, a a joy to have every morning at 11. And Todd, if I can just add, all of that is really available to students in the other church work vocations as well. 
And so that's a really exciting thing to me, to be teaching not only the pre-SEM students, but also to be teaching these things for the students who will serve, serve in the Missouri Synod and other capacities. It's a great place to be here. You can learn more about the pre-seminary program at Concordia University, Chicago, at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Listen On Demand. Dr. Jacob Corzine is Assistant Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago, author of a column for the latest issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Body of Christ. Dr. Corzine, thank you. Thanks, Todd. We will be responding to your email and to your comments on the Issues Etc. comment line right after the break. That email address, talkback at issuesetc.org, and our comment line, 618-223-8382. Nicholas von Amsdorf was the only nobleman in Luther's inner circle, yet few people today have ever heard of him. Learn more about one of the first evangelical bishops in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April, Nicholas von Amsdorf, champion of Martin Luther's Reformation. You can browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 and request the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Nicholas von Amsdorf. Discover a truly Lutheran approach to education. Concordia University Chicago's Center for the Advancement of Lutheran Liberal Arts supports a vibrant, growing community of classical educators. Whether you're a teacher, administrator, parent, or homeschooler, we have the resources and contacts you need to start a child's journey into the Lutheran liberal arts. Visit cuchicago.edu slash cala. That's C-A-L-L-A. Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Peace Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chehalis, Washington. Biblical, historic Christianity. Whose source is scripture, whose heart is the gospel. If you're in southwest Washington, join us for the divine service. You will receive Jesus, crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of your sins, We promise. For more information, call us at 360-748-4108. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com and like them on Facebook. Facebook.com slash LutherAcademy. 